0: Bluemaker's podcast, where waste is not wasted anymore. Hey, hey, again! For the new listeners... My name is orso buyten Böjten, I'm a Hungarian from Romania, and this is the Blue Makers podcast by Uh The reason why I do this whole podcasting, because I'm a very curious person, and I have a bunch of uh, questions regarding sustainability, nature-based solutions, and the blue economy. So I uh, make interviews with people who work in this field and I ask questions, so uh, I hope that I can improve uh, my knowledge about this topic and I hope that this is also can be an inspiration for you too. And today our guest is Dina Chala. Uh, he is also Hungarian from Romania like me. Uh, but he actually lives in the UK because he teaches uh, in the Lancaster University uh, about sustainable energy and um, at the Department of Engineering. And also at the same time, he teaches uh, in our country, in Cluj-Napoca, uh, about data visualization for students. And also, he is a member of the Zayed Sustainability Prize, uh, he is a jury member there, with, uh, with who? With uh, Gunther Pauli, who is the father of the black economy. <laughs> so uh, this uh, episode will be uh, interesting and exciting, I hope you will enjoy it. So let's listen to Danish!
1: It's a, it's a bit uh, more complicated to introduce myself than it should be. But uh, basically, I wear, I would say, mainly two hats. The, the first one is that I'm, I'm a researcher. So I'm um, a full time uh, academic an assistant professor at Lancaster University in the UK. Uh, and mostly my research area is in the modeling energy systems, modeling complex systems in general but like modeling energy systems and energy storage systems uh, more and more nowadays specifically. Uh, I also teach of course at the university. So, and I actually quite like that. So I quite like the, the teaching part of my job. And then another, another part would be that um, uh, I sometimes tr- sort of uh, try to formulate as a data activism. So I, I try to create data visualizations um, and I do this on a consulting level as well as on a sort of like a blog level, sort of like raising raising awareness. But um, I'm trying to uh, sort of nurture and, and foster uh, data visualization as a, as a technique, almost, almost uh, you could call it as a movement in uh, the Hungarian language speaking region of Romania across across Transylvania. And then tied to this work, I also teach again at the Babeș-Bolyai University in, uh, in the college krush napoka
0: And you also teach in another university. Uh, could you please uh, tell us more about it?
1: Currently in the UK I teach a couple of courses uh, that all of them relate to energy and sustainability in general. So I teach a very basic course uh, that relates to sort of magnetic fields and uh, how electric machines and power systems operate. Then I have uh, another course, this is for second year students, and then I have another course for third year students, which is about uh, uh, energy conversion in general. So this is about power plants and uh, sort of historical energy transitions and how uh, we, we look at the history of fossil fuels and uh, the, the penetration of energy. Uh, well, coal in the beginning and then oil and then natural gas and then nuclear power and then renewables at the end and then even energy storage technologies at the very end. And then I also teach a fourth year course. So in the UK education system and the engineering degree, the fourth year is an integrated master's degree. This is kind of like a master's level course. This is about, uh, well, it's called advanced uh, modeling of uh, energy systems. And uh, what what this is about is we look back at the history. It's kind of like an energy economics course uh, in the first part. So we look back at the longer term history of how energy systems has have evolved and how enabled or didn't enable economic prosperity on on the way across the across countries of the of the world. And then this is sort of like we start with the big picture and then we narrow it down and start uh, doing some pretty hardcore sort of like matrix equations in the in the end to actually model networks energy networks so this is what i teach in lancaster and i I quite i quite like this uh, to be honest Uh, although typically the, the 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 further you go so in the beginning you only have like uh classes that are very large so typically you would have 100 to 200 students in a, in a classroom. Well, not nowadays, but normally you would have 100 to 200 students in a classroom or in the lecture theater. And then as you go further, then in the, in the third year, I only have 50. And in the fourth year, I just have like five or 10 students. And then in, the, in Romania, uh, sort of uh, back home, I could call it. I, so when the planes are in the sky, typically I fly there uh, every one or two months and then I teach uh, everything that has to do with, uh, I would say, the the broader area of uh, business intelligence. So I have a course which is called uh, uh, Decision Support Systems, which is basically a fancy name uh, for introduction to data visualization. And then there is a follow-up course to this. These are both of them for third-year students. So uh, in the business school, this is the final year. Um, and then the follow-up course is called uh, Integrated Computer Systems or something like that. Uh, and then, <laughs> and then this is this is a, I mean the official name is always changing, so I, I don't it's not so important. This is a, this is effectively an advanced data visualization course with a little bit of uh, sort of introduction to machine learning. So it's um, I mean if if I if I if I would like to sort of like describe myself in a few words. Probably if, it, if I only had three words I would say perhaps energy data and teaching
0: it's nice and how did you end in this field why did you choose to work uh, with this fields
1: in the beginning I uh, well I went to I went to electrical engineering as an undergraduate in in college I, I finished in 2011. and then after that I uh, ended up in the in the united arab emirates in abu dhabi of all places uh, because uh, i went to i went to a university called master institute which was kind of like a, a joint venture with uh, mit uh, so i did a masters degree there but it was sort of the sort of like the, the american style masters so it lasted for 2 years and it was kind of like a mini phd so all all research based i really like that that was uh, that was called um, engineering systems and management and uh, I've decided to stay, so I continued for another three years, and I did a PhD, and then uh, eventually that, that was called uh, interdisciplinary engineering, uh, and then I managed to I managed to do it sort of like commuting back and forth between Boston and Abu Dhabi, so we did we did have uh, quite quite a good time there, and I really I really enjoyed uh, the the degree, and it was throughout this degree that I was introduced. Uh, to uh, sort of complex systems modeling and sustainability in general so but where where i lived in abu dhabi it's called mazdar city and it was envisioned as uh, well everybody calls it the city of the future and now there's many 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 since then there are many many other initiatives that call themselves the city of the future but um back in 2010, so I, I went there in 2011, it was going on for the second year by then, it was really sort of like uh, something remarkable. So they they had a 10 megawatt solar power plant on the campus and then we only had like electric vehicles on the campus and everything was like, it's hyper expensive, but also hyper sustainable materials and then like very, very good insulations. So it was kind of like futuristic. So all of, the, all of the degree programs that they had, they were very much geared towards uh, towards sustainability uh, sustainability and uh, you, you notice that i talk about it in the past tense because uh, unfortunately since then they have merged the mazdar institute into a larger uh, they call it khalifa university now so it's a larger entity within the uae but nonetheless it's it's still it still uh, upholds the same principles of being well at least at least a low carbon if not a zero carbon uh, sort of habitat for a couple of thousand people so that, that was my background, and then I was uh, uh, I came for a I came for a guest lecture at Lancaster University before uh, before COP twenty one, so uh, just um, uh, just as um, the climate summit in uh, twenty fifteen was going on in Paris, uh, I, I was at a guest lecture here at um, here at Lancaster University. And then I was talking about my modeling work, and the engineering department happened to have a position. And then, uh, well, then I decided that you know what, maybe I should try this. And then I, I ended up here. So parallel with this, this is the Lancaster side of the story. Parallel with this, uh, you have to be careful because I tend to give 10 minutes answers, then 10 minute answers to every question. So, so the, the par- parallel with this, I I started growing my uh, my uh, data visualization portfolio. And this was mostly done in Hungarian language with, uh, with, with focusing on, on uh, Transylvania and uh, Sekeland. And uh, what I, um, s- s- slowly slowly, what I realized that uh, perhaps there is some kind of a demand for uh, data-driven uh, visual analysis uh, in the, uh, but not, not just in Sekeland, but on, on, on the Hungarian uh, internet sphere in general. So slowly, I, I created a couple of posts, a couple of blog posts. Uh, I still try to do, although the the frequency has dropped so to 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 some extent. And then uh, somehow I became sort of like the data guy or the data visualization guy, to the go-to data visualization guy, in uh, definitely in Transylvania, perhaps in a, uh, to some extent in the wider Hungarian-speaking region as well. Uh, and then. Um, uh, the dean of the business school who 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 with whom i know from from childhood on a on a a different on a different thread uh, told me that uh, they're really trying to uh, take the they they have a degree uh, which is called uh, sort of like business and computer science or something like that and they're trying to take this degree more towards data science and more towards um, the, the computer science part side. And then maybe it would be, it would be a good idea if I, if I gave a few guest lectures there and then I ended up, ended up teaching two, two courses permanently there. So that's how, that's how, that's how I ended up the, teaching the courses and it, this is how the background uh, sort of shapes up.
0: And near all of this, you have another initiative, the DXtory uh, program. Why did you uh, start this? And what was your motivation?
1: Well, this is, uh, I, I've only talked uh, on, on sort of like, uh, well, I wouldn't say achievements, but sort of like a professional history level so far. And um, on a personal level, um, well, I definitely like to, you know, fiddle around with data visualizations and uh, write some code. But I, what, I actually, what I actually like, or what, what I would actually like to focus on long, longer term is uh sort of larger problems and one of the one of the larger problems i think might be uh, education and how do we how do we teach children today from from the first grade uh, all the way to to university because if you look at the history of uh, education systems but they haven't really changed a lot for 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 the past hundred years or so right so the tests are still Are given in the same very same format as they were 100 years ago so that's that's a bit worrisome. and i think uh we do have actually an excellent educational system in uh, in uh let's say let's say romania or hungary or sort of like the more eastern side of uh, of europe so that's not really you know i don't want to be a crusader to, to reform but what i think that it might be Lacking, especially when compared to Northern American educational systems, is uh, curiosity. So, or 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 kind of like the the relentless will to question. Uh, Of course, that can be annoying. I mean, you you become a sort of like a pain in the ass student if you ask everything, and teachers don't like that, of course. But I think sort of like teaching across teaching across the world. This is what I noticed: is that the students who grew up in the former communist systems uh, or former Soviet-influenced uh, systems, and, for example, Chinese students today, they are very much obeying towards authority. So they they don't really ask questions. They just, you know, do, do what they told. Whereas, uh, to some extent, English students, but definitely North American students, they always look for a reason of, why should I do this? Or what's, what's the purpose behind it? And then I believe this... The latter uh, creates a much more sort of questioning behavior in your mind. And then I think overall, the purpose of the education, this this is what it should be to create, to teach you how to think. Because if you don't think, then you cannot question anything and then you accept everything. And that's not, you know, society is not going to progress like that. So I also think that there's a... uh, there's no real culture of debate in, uh, in, in in let's say the the post-soviet educational systems so this is sort of like the the philosophical background of why why do I want to why do I want to do anything that relates to education but uh, yeah I, I, it's kind of like a, a, a little bit heartfelt wherever whenever something about education is going on and I I would like to you know if I have an opinion I I'll I will say it uh, and then in this case I did have an opinion so what happened is that uh, we we have uh, we have seen, of course, as we moved online in the beginning of uh, the, the pandemic, uh, the education system was already sort of not really able to cope with education in the school. Let alone, it was kind of like a bit headless and was just running running uh, hot headed. So there was there was a clip. It's not it's not so important. There was a clip where uh, sort of a, a teacher start, started with uh, started talking with one of the students in. Kind of like an unacceptable uh, cursing kind of kind of manner. So then I was like, you know what? This is not so cool. So, and this is hap- this is happening all across the country, perhaps m- multiple countries, all the time. And what is the, you know what the, what are the mechanisms that we can use in order to? look at this problem and they're not that many it's actually quite a difficult problem both from the student side as well as the teacher side if you know if the student is not really behaving in class the teacher doesn't actually have that many instruments at his hand other than the grades Uh, so if the the grades don't work it's quite a difficult situation but uh, perhaps it's even worse on the student side because if let's say the the teacher is abusive and it doesn't have to be like physically abusive it can just be you know public shaming in front of the class which uh, does tend to leave a mark that lasts over let's say multiple years uh, then you know people don't forget that Uh, and that's not really cool because then obviously if this is the environment that you need to operate obviously you're not you're not going to develop this uh, sort of culture of asking and being inquisitive that i asked before so You could say that it's sort of like not a very welcoming environment. Obviously, this is just—I would—I would would hope that it's the exception, but it does happen. I I would say that it does happen at least in in every school in in Romania, at least in uh, for for the case of some professors or some teachers. So then, what I said, okay, you know what? Let's have let's have a collection of uh, these uh, stories that have happened throughout throughout school uh, school life. And let's have sort of like a safe, secure, anonymous place for collecting them. And so this is what I did. And definitely, I didn't do it alone. Uh, I had a lot of help. Uh, with, there's a, there's a, Actually, there's a very awesome uh, organization for youth, run by youth in uh, in Koloshvar called AirTed. And then, uh, yeah, these guys were like uh, really, really jumping on the idea from the beginning. Uh, and also the association of... Uh, hungarian students in uh, in romania students as in as in high school students or i i i i might uh, yeah i think that that's the correct way of saying that so then uh, with these with these stakeholders we we set up basically a platform for collecting these stories and presenting them to the public because after kind of like a, a going back and forth a few times of brainstorming we decided that offering public visibility to these stories that have happened to people and not just students also parents and also also teachers so the public visibility might be the best way to actually raise enough awareness that this uh, this becomes uh, this becomes a discussion for uh, uh, for the for the public discourse so. Yeah, this is this is what this is what it, what it is about. We have uh, and then there's there's different mechanisms here. I don't really have that much hand, rather than just sort of like setting it setting it off. Uh, where where what kind of uh, artistic mechanisms do we use? I think we yeah. So so, so far we have uh, like a comic book style um, uh, method for sharing the stories. We also have some short videos where people like present like like a monologue. Uh, so yeah, that, that's, going, that's going quite well. Uh, I'm not so sure about the end impact because obviously it's very difficult to measure, but so far the response has been quite positive.
0: I think it's a very important step because uh, a lot of times we talk about uh, how to solve a problem or realize something, but we don't talk about the impact of the human psychology. And I think uh, without uh, stable um, mental health, we can't focus on solving problems in the world.
1: Absolutely. That's absolutely true. And uh, if you, for for example, if you look at the, if you look at the breakdown of, uh, let's say public health funding, uh, for example, in the UK, the share of uh, mental health funding is much, much higher than than let's say in, in, in Romania. And then, if 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 you want to be sort of like hostile, you could say that perhaps people have more problems here. But uh, even if that's true, the share is still way much higher. So I do think that they realize that this uh, this is something that you need to that you need to pay attention to. So
0: congratulations for uh, all of this. And uh, another question that came into my mind that you are also a member at Zayat Sustainability Organization, and if you could tell us more about it
1: right so if you uh i'm not sure i'm not sure people might not know so maybe i just give you a quick summary of what what actually is the desired sustainability prize so what what you're talking about is that uh, i am a member of the of the selection committee for the high school's zayed sustainability prize and then this is an awesome prize so what it does is that uh, so back in the day uh I think it started about ten years ago when I was still living in Abu Dhabi, and uh, we had an initiative with a couple of my friends uh, where we went around the world and extremely remote regions and sort of like, uh, let's say, let's say with limited limited financial opportunities uh, to uh, schools with limited financial opportunities. And then what we did, we tried to, well, hold lectures lectures to them about uh, sustainability and renewable energy in 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 general and then a lot of times these were like extremely humbling because you know if you're if you're in a in a small village in the himalayas or if you're in a in a small village in the in the savannah in uh, next 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 to kilimanjaro the effects of climate change are much more tangible for you because these are the regions which feel the effects of climate change first like for example we were we were visiting uh three schools in the kilimanjaro region and they said that it's very very uh, tangible because they're they are growing uh they're growing coffee and the coffee crop the the coffee crop has been moving up the mountain year by year and then it's like a measurable amount like they have to go higher and higher with their coffee fields uh, year year by year and then they also have to switch they sometimes some crops don't support it so um I, I remember that they had to switch one crop for another and then they don't have enough expertise to grow that so it's uh, uh, it's it's very 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 uh, close to to the people. It's not something out there. sometimes you know especially in Europe because the climate doesn't change that much it's, it's, we, we pe- people tend to kind of like uh, downplay its importance or, or something like that. so so there the people are very very close to to, to the impacts. And the same in, same in for example, uh, the Himalayas where the glaciers are uh, not supplying as much water as they used to, even 10 years ago. So what we did is we went around a few schools, uh, mostly mostly in Africa and uh, Asia, but especially Southeast Asia. And we held uh, educational workshops. And then throughout this work, the, the people at the Future Energy Prize, uh, they took notice. Uh, that you know we were working with schools so they thought maybe it would be a good idea to to have someone uh from our organization in the in the jury and then uh, in the beginning it was one of my colleagues who was in the jury and then i i i, I uh, took her place and basically that what the prize does is it's i think in the beginning it used to be uh split um on uh, organizations so there was high school a prize for high schools, a prize for small corporations, NGOs, and large corporations, and it's a significant prize. Like for high schools, each school gets, I believe, hundred thousand dollars, and then for organizations and corporations, I think it's a million dollars. So, it's uh, it's it's not it's not toy money. Uh, and then what they are expecting is uh, projects from around the world uh, that showcase sustainability uh, leadership. Or sustainability especially in the beginning more with there was more emphasis on renewable energy in the beginning of the 2010s uh, but now it now it shifted and it, it there was they were even called zayed future energy prize in the beginning and now they shifted their name for sustainability so i think as they become as, as they became 10 years old in in uh, 2019 uh, they uh, revamped the structure a little bit so now they are topical areas instead of organizations so now there's like i think water health Uh, energy food uh, something like this uh, and water so but the high schools part it's a bit special so basically what it happens is that the schools submit proposals of a plan for a hundred thousand dollars of some kind of uh typically renewable energy but sustainability in general uh, improvement that they would like to make to their campus and then uh, the world is split into regions. It's like There's like the Americas is separate, Africa is separate, like Middle East is separate, Europe is separate, Asia is separate, Oceania is separate. And then in each of these regions, uh, we award one prize. So uh, the, the top school gets uh, gets $100,000 to actually implement the project that they have been doing. And then the, the response to that just, it just has been amazing. So like the, most of the time, these, these projects are student driven, and uh, in some cases, even student-managed. Uh, in other cases, they, they are teacher-managed. And then, uh, yeah, ma- many schools, they submit uh, st- stuff like they want to build a solar power plant or a solar roof uh, for, for their schools. They, they have erected wind turbines, biomass, uh, uh, biomass power plants, or uh, biogasifiers. Uh, so there's there's quite a variety. And typically, it also it's also followed by an educational component or we as the jury tend to tend to uh, perhaps reward those that incorporate education into the into the, the the project so it's not just sort of like a, a turnkey project into the into their uh, proposals uh so this is yeah this this is what what i'm doing and then uh i think uh, there is about uh, a handful of people uh Six or seven of us who look at these proposals and then we, give, uh, we, we deliberate uh, over a few days, we give them some scores, and then there is a final there's a final jury which selects all the, all the prizes, all the, all the prizes. Um, but yeah, then uh, the schools who win get the money to actually implement the, whatever they proposed.:
0: And uh, how does the implementation look like uh, for a school? So if they receive the award, what happens after that?
1: So that's a very good question. That's a very good question. So, so actually, the way the way that we got in uh, the, the the way that we got in touch with the prize was that our our organization uh, started looking at some schools which were a little bit in trouble in terms of in terms of implementing their projects because in a lot of cases, uh, you know, these are uh, very very enthusiastic teachers but they do not necessarily have experience in project management. So suddenly you have to you have to manage a project. you have to you, you have to perhaps hire people. so it's it, it, it does, does you know it can, it can be challenging. So typically what what happens is that uh, already when they submit the the proposal, uh, the very good the very good proposals have like price quotations. Uh, they have uh, totally broken down by the component. So let's say let's say a certain school uh, wants to uh, wants to build uh, perhaps some some improvements to the campus. Maybe they want to change the lights to LED lights. Maybe they want to have uh, some a uh, small energy storage in on the campus. Maybe they want to have some on-site energy generation either via, via photovoltaic panels or via uh, a wind turbine. Maybe they want to have some sustainable cooking, uh, perhaps using biogas, and then. Typically when they submit the prize, the one of the questions really asks for a cost breakdown. So most of the time, in order to get that cost breakdown, the schools already go out to suppliers and ask them what would be the price at which they could supply this. So then the the, the, the successful schools just go back to the supplier and they ask them to, okay, so now we have won this, and then they ask them for, you know, to, to implement whatever they have been promised. Uh, in uh, in in several schools, the the principal gets involved or, or the parents get involved, so there might be some uh, more project management experience coming from from that side. Uh, but there there are some schools who who struggle, and then yeah, typically then it's a case by case basis. Sometimes the 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 committee of the of the prize sends out some people try try to assess the situation, see what kind of help is help is needed. But I think most of the well I, all, all of the, all of the prizes that have been awarded, more or less, have been uh, delivered to whatever was said in the proposal.
0: You mentioned sustainability. I, uh, I am curious, uh, what does it mean, especially for you? Because I know that there is not a unified uh, definition.
1: So typically, that's a that's a very good question, and there's no there's no easy answer. There's no easy answer to that. So typically what uh, people mean by sustainability i think they think about the, the three pillars sustainability so so basically that would be uh, environmental economic and uh what's the third one uh, environment uh, yeah exactly uh, in, in environmental economic and social sustainability so i think uh, what 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 it actually means is uh, is uh Critical thinking, or something like that. So, being mindful of what am I doing, should be replicable several years down the line as well. So uh, the you know the the people who like nature, uh, when you go when you go and hike in in nature, the sort of like the the hiking advocates have the saying of leave no trace. And the leave no trace means, you know, don't leave, don't leave any garbage behind or don't destroy the trees and, you know, don't destroy the environment around you. So I think that's quite a good definition, the leave no trace uh, of, of sustainability. Uh, and in, in, in practical terms, what it means is that I think you should consume at the rate or you should, it doesn't have to be consumption. You should produce new stuff at a rate which is smaller than the rate of regeneration of the stuff so you're not uh, you're not kind of like taking a loan from the future and then consuming it now and then you know some somebody has to give the loan back to nature i mean it can be it can be even a generational loan as you said if we talk about social sustainability it's a it's a pension fund right so now we are basically putting all the all the all the financial burden further down generations and then at some point, if the population is aging, it becomes a big problem, like it is in the case of, let's say, several European countries or Japan. So that that's that's one part. It should be economically sustainable. So again, it shouldn't be it shouldn't be um, realized from assets that you don't have. Uh, but it this also means that not not just uh, it's not realized from a loan, but it also means that. Uh, it shouldn't be uh, sort of like uh, a fleeting, uh, a fleeting opportunity that you can make money on it today, but then tomorrow it's 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 not there anymore because maybe you consume the resource or maybe you you cannibalize your market. So it should be continually being able to to provide perhaps even perhaps even lesser than sort of like going against the quick gains, which is very prevalent, unfortunately, in in, in today's society. And then the environmental part would be to yeah don't don't consume resources that are not renewable or at least consume if it, if you have to consume resources that are basically stocks uh, uh, in like reserves for example from metals in the earth of course you have to consume those but at least don't consume them as at a rate at which they will deplete earlier than the next generation at least you should look look forward into let's say, not just one or two, but maybe you should leave enough resources for the next 10 or the next 50 generations. Uh, so that would be the, the environmental sustainability. And then, of course, this it also means uh, consuming from your carbon carbon budget, not just consuming from your uh, actual resources that are on in, in, in the ground.
0: And uh, how do you see um, who is responsible for this? Or can we define one responsible for all of this to be sustainable.
1: So this is a very very difficult question and uh, I did try to touch on this in my in my PhD thesis and um, it it really depends on how do you how do you define responsibility? Because if you look at let's say consumption, a lot of the stuff is produced in China and a lot of the stuff is consumed in Europe or the US. So who's responsible for the emissions that the stuff creates? is it where you produce them or is it where you consume them it's not it's not a very straightforward question or let's say if you want to if you want to dis- distribute let's say co2 emissions or even pollution equally how are you going to distribute it are you going to distribute it proportionally to let's say population so uh, let's say china takes most of the blame and india takes most of the blame or are you going to distribute it with uh, respect to gdp so that maybe europe or the us takes most of the blame Again, it's also not so straightforward. And then, if you do a mixture of this, okay, then how are you going to weight? How are you going to weight the population versus versus GDP? Because basically, for example, like India or Pakistan, they're saying that you know what, you guys have been consuming at a crazy rate for two hundred years, and now you're trying to trying to tell us that we should scale back because of your because of your uh, greed. It's also you know it's also not so fair. So it's very very difficult to, to define responsibility. However, there is one thing for sure, which is that if you look at uh, if you look at emissions, there is a very very clear uh, connection with wealth. The, if you have and the way the way it works is that um, typically there is a very strong correlation, like uh, R squared of more than zero point nine between energy consumption per capita and gdp per capita so wealthy countries consume more energy but it's also true on an individual level and it's even more skewed uh, uh, on an an individual level so extremely wealthy individuals tend to consume exponentially more energy than let's say the, the average so and also there is a very strong correlation uh, between energy and emissions of course this is only true until that energy is coming from mostly fossil fuel sources which it does and has been for the for the past few decades although it has been it has been changing now so for example in the uk or in the us per capita emissions have been slowly going down because of the coal power plant phase out uh, and then into massive introduction of uh of renewables and then this will this will be even better when uh, we start replacing um internal combustion vehicles with electric vehicles. But currently this is how it builds up that if you're wealthier you cause cons- you tend to consume more energy and if you consume more energy you tend to produce more emissions. So then you could say in-, in theory that you could do sort of like a per capita wealth-based redistribution. And then the world's billionaires would have to take half of the blame because then that's half of the emissions. It's half of the energy. So the And then what that means, like, let's say, a handful of people, so just a few thousand people, as opposed to the rest of the 7 billion or the 8 billion, that's an extremely skewed distribution. Now, our brains cannot process this kind of extreme distributions. So that's why it's it's very, very difficult to even fathom how can you distribute responsibility. So, yeah, I would say yeah most of the most of the responsibility is basically the, the wealthier you are you you should have more responsibility but at the same time i don't want to state this very strongly because uh, it does open up a deeper question like oftentimes we uh, i think uh, especially across social media we start seeing the question of uh, whether capitalism is good or not and uh, whether you know, alternative systems are, are better, especially in the West, which, uh, like, you know, us in Eastern Europe, we have we have had our, our share of of, uh, of socialism and even worse, uh, sort of like state-sponsored socialism in the form of communism. It wasn't very good. Uh, we were constantly trying to look for alternatives in the West, which had capitalism. And now the, the, the Western countries, especially North America and, and, and Western Europe, they're trying to look at socialism as, you know, saving us from the the inequalities that capitalism has produced so i would i would actually be mindful a little bit of of that because the capitalist system has actually produced yeah overall there is extremely inequality but overall the whole population is actually much wealthier than let's say a hundred years ago so, and the trend is increasing so i i i wouldn't i wouldn't go as far as trying to dismantle that you know what if you're extremely rich, which is probably enabled by the mechanisms embedded in capitalism, then you should be, you know, one-to-one responsible for, for for let's say, the climate crisis. But I would say that there is a weight that is possible to discuss in terms of, uh, even if it's not one-to-one, probably it should be weighted a little bit.
0: And how do you see who can do more for uh, uh, sustainable transition companies or uh, individuals?
1: Companies have to make money, so they can't. It's, it has to be individuals, but it's also not so, not so straightforward because you as an individual, as, as I said, the, the distribution is extremely skewed, right? So you as an individual, your carbon footprint, it's much smaller if you live, let's say, in, uh, in, in India than if you live in, in Germany. But that's not because, I mean, just, that's just how society is constructed, the different kinds of, let's say, luxury or comfort services, that you are using so there's there's definitely you, you can change you can change the way you think about energy so you can you can definitely change uh you, you you can get an electric car that would be good but only in countries where energy is produced mostly from hydropower or renewables and not uh, sort of like limited amount of of, of coal so that that's quite uh, quite a high impact people say that uh reducing flying it's it's definitely the one of the one of the highest uh, going going vegetarian is just one of the highest but these are on an individual level these are difficult choices right so i am not much of an advocate for going on for individual direct action it is possible it's very possible and it's it's very very good but i would say that it's much more effective if individuals utilize their collective power. So individuals, well, if democracy is working the way it should, individuals, in theory, elect governments. So they should be able to exercise, sort of like asking the government, you know, the government should have a responsibility towards the people uh, in terms of fulfilling whatever the, the people's will is. So what people could say is that they could, have like they could create enough agitation or enough public discourse so that they would slowly force governments to introduce market mechanisms and then i would still stay within the free market but then if you introduce market mechanisms to uh, effectively penalize uh, non-sustainable market practices i think then the free market should 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 be, should be able to equalize the, the differences so, and then there's there's already there's already examples of this like we have carbon tax in europe we have carbon tax in australia um like tesla for example uh, electric vehicle uh, company most of their money is not made on uh, on cars even though they manufacture damn good cars most of their money is, is made on trading their certificates t- trading their sustainability certificates to other automakers who are not as sustainable as them uh, so i think uh, we should we should we should have faith that the market can uh, of course it's very difficult to decide what kind of market mechanisms of you to use right because like even even with renewable energy introduction, introduction of renewable energy like germany decided to use a market mechanism and then they have embedded the price of uh creating uh, renewable energy generation capacity into the into the actual electricity tariff, which of course the, the suppliers push down onto the people so now the electricity price is, is much higher than it used to be. Uh, but this is this is a, a collective burden and then I think uh, it's, a, it's a possible way and it's perhaps it's a better way than, uh, than individual direct action but most likely the combination of combination of both would be would be the best you know if you go to the extreme i know that there are some people who say that we should uh, we should aim for uh, the complete uh, complete uh, uh, termination of consumption and the complete termination of ownership so i think that's 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 a bit radical but probably we do have some areas where we could improve like we don't need fast fashion you know we don't need uh, plastic packaging we 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 do we really need internal combustion cars? So do we really need to fly when we can take the train? Well, obviously this is a diffi- more difficult question because there's a comfort and time element in- involved as well. But in terms of the, you know, if you go to the supermarket, you nowadays you have a choice. You you can try to to buy the stuff that is in the paper packaging or buy the stuff that is in the plastic packaging. Or if if you if you can buy something, you can you can buy it that is that you can buy something that is made of wood or you can buy something that is made of plastic. It's just you know it's cheaper so you do have you do have choices so especially if you have the economic comfort to to make these choices then you should make these choices perhaps
0: back uh, to the beginning of your answer where you say that uh, companies can't be uh, do more than an individual I would ask that uh, so you think that a company can't be profitable, and at and the same, t- same time, um, environmentally and socially sustainable?
1: So so I didn't actually say anything. Sorry, I, I missed half of the question. I, I missed answering half of the question. So I didn't say anything about the companies. I focused on the individuals. That's, that's, fair, that, that's very fair. Uh, absolutely not. I think that companies can actually make a lot of money while being sustainable uh, as not just sustainable, but also staying socially responsible. Uh, and i think especially we can see it in the uk that there is a real value like people actually will pay a higher price if you can prove that you are using let's say sustainable materials or that you are using renewable energy to run your factory people will pay incredibly more for for that obviously for those who can who can afford it but especially if you're in a market segment which targets let's say uh, not a a cutthroat competition but if you're like in a mid-range market segment there's definitely a clear marketable countable advantage towards being sustainable and you might even be making more money so it's it's definitely uh, is definitely not a uh, a disadvantage by default and people tend to think that but it's it might not be uh, and on top of that on top of that uh, i think the people are more and more aware because of the internet and because of uh, the being able to comment on everything and being able to rate everything people are more and more aware of the practices that companies use so there is definitely an advantage if you can prove that you are the three pillars right environmentally socially and economically sustainable. But people don't really care about the economically sustainable. They tend to attack you if you're too, too successful, right? But if you can prove that you're economically and socially and sustainable, people like, people really like that. And then you as a company can monetize that because it raises your image profile.
0: Regarding to this, I know that you know uh, Gunther Pauli through the Zayed Sustainability Prize uh, and uh, his uh, concept of black economy. What is your impression about it?
1: So that, yeah, definitely we are we are we are we are both sitting on the selection committee of the of the high of the high school's prize, and then uh, as far as far as I understand, he's he's talking uh, very much along along the same same lines that instead of uh, well well I think what he says is but what, what he's trying to say is that greenness and sort of green technologies have become kind of like an overused word. And uh, the, the, he he tries to replace it with blue. Uh, first of all, because the planet is blue, and whatever is blue is blue for the it's it's uh, it's good for everything. And the sky is blue, and, and these are you know these are these are uh, the, uh, positive feelings uh, in us. But I think what is what is is crucially saying is that we only have one planet so in theory we should only be consuming at the rate of the regeneration of the planet so we should as and that also entails that we have to recycle a lot of things that that, that we have or not just recycling in the terms of the actual uh, waste that we have and recycle waste but uh, recycle processes as well so create a lot of feed, tiny tiny feedback loops and then minimize the unnecessary waste and then this this is what blues the economy that uh, it, it, it 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 basically uh, makes it nature compatible or earth earth compatible uh, if you if you reduce the amount of waste and then of course the lesser let's say the more res- re- the more uh, recycled streams that you have in your in your uh, processes uh, the less and less you start depending on new resources which overall is good for the planet and it's also good for habitats you don't have to uproot people so it's uh, in some sense it's not just an environmental choice but it's also a social choice Uh, and then i think what is also part of the blue economy is that the people are part of the planet like the people are inhabitants of the planet so your company should be nice to the people as well or it should it, it should take their needs into into account as well so this just uh, in, in very very simple terms this this can mean that you know if you really need your raw materials try to find the try to find the place for your mine where there are no inhabitants so that you don't have to uproot people or or, or something like that so I think it's, uh, it's something like being mindful of the, of the environment uh, not just the environment as in terms of the classical sense of the atmosphere, but uh, people, uh, as we live in a network and all the materials that we consume are part of a network. So be mindful of this network and what is your position inside the network.
0: Regarding network, how do you see, how can we apply uh, data visualization uh, in the transition of sustainability?
1: So one of the most uh, one of the most uh, prevalent news uh, stories of uh, twenty nineteen was a visualization called the climate the climate stripes. I forget whose uh, I forget the name of the researcher who created the climate stripes. But it's basically just a few uh, a few vertical lines showing uh, different uh, colors of temperature, and then it just shows how much sort of like the overall the planet uh, warmed, and then various kinds of uh, social media profiles started to be full uh, with climate stripes calculated for cities countries uh, regions or the global ones uh, as a whole in fact i did i did uh, for all cities in romania and hungary i I calculated the climate stripes so what i mean by that is that everybody from the from the national china post to the new york times published this Uh, which created discussion and which created awareness. So our world today is extremely visual. And there's, a, there's even a psychological effect. It's called the picture superiority effect. So we look everything on, among text. We look for the pictures first. Uh, so, uh, and then data visualizations are kind of like in between. Uh, so if we manage to convey powerful messages via data visualization, people will listen because it comes through the noise of text. It kind of like raises above that. So I think uh, that that's how that's how data visualization can help by creating more awareness.
0: And if someone would like to uh, start to learn uh, data visualization, what would you recommend? Where should they start it?
1: They should write me because sometimes I hold courses. <laughs> so <laughs> that's, uh, it's, it's kind of like a half joke. So uh, there is an excellent resource called uh, data is beautiful on Reddit. It's a subreddit, uh, data is beautiful. And uh, people post all kinds of stuff there. And usually they, they say the tools that they use in order to create those visualizations. Data visualization is very much a, you have to kind of sit down and learn kind of, uh, of, a, of, a, of a subject. So you have to invest an incredible amount of time trying to copy others' work and then once you start having enough uh experience uh, of copying then you start understanding how do these tools work and then you start creating your own because there is no unified you know one 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 size fits all tool there's like literally hundreds of tools they are better in one task or, or another some people say that you know you could try to start with a dashboard type application so. Power BI or Tableau or Click is quite a good, quite a good tool, or even Google Data Studio. Uh, I would, I would advise a little bit against that. I would say that you should try to learn the basics first. You should try to learn because these tools they do a lot of, lot of things for you. Like they automatically create the visualizations, they create the axes, they create the labels, they select the colors, and you don't know why. Why are they making those choices? Like, an incredible amount of work that has being put by the engineers at Microsoft or Tableau to making those choices for you. It's much better if you actually understand why the choice is there, because otherwise it becomes inadvertently manipulative. You don't know why people are not taking the message that you intended away from your visualization. So I would say that you have to study a little bit of the, the theory of communication and especially visual communication behind that. One very good resource for that is the the University of Washington's uh, Interactive Data Lab, so Jeffrey here is uh, uh, leading that. It's, it's quite awesome. They, they create a tool called Vega. I would encourage people to go try out Vega. If you have, I think, uh, it's on the scale of a few thousand dollars, then you can even do an online master's. Uh, that's very good. If you come to my course, that's a bit cheaper. Uh, but uh, yeah, jo- jokes aside, I think the best tool today is something called D3JS. So that's a JavaScript tool that can create anything, but the learning curve for it is extremely extremely steep. So it's very very hard to to do day three JS visualizations. So what people can people can uh, a path that people can follow is typically start with a dashboarding tool like Power BI, and then once you start hitting the limitations of Power BI, then you look at some other tools. There's there's a plethora of free tools online. Some of them are even uh, developed by Hungarian developers. Uh, and then slowly you have to uh, start uh, just looking at the demos, looking at the tutorials. You have to you have to start clicking, and uh, once you have started clicking with the tool for a month, then you can start importing your own data and click with your own data. So it's just time. You need to invest a lot of time. But the uh, data visualization community is sort of very well 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 knit together. It's like tight tightly knit together, and. Uh, People follow each other on Twitter. People people follow the subreddits. There's a Slack channel. And uh, you will be welcome if you just say that, you know, hi, everyone. There's Data Visualization Society on, on, on Slack. You write there that, you know what, I'm a newbie. I want to learn. Uh, what should I do? They're going to send you like 100, 100 responses in 10 minutes. So that's probably the best way. You
0: mentioned that you have courses, Uh, everybody can join uh, if uh, they are not uh, students at the university
1: so yeah I was, I was i was half serious i was half serious uh, with, with the courses but yeah the basically what's happening is that on top of i do hold a data visualization course at the university so yeah this is for university students but sometimes depending on uh, depending on what what is the interest i hold uh, sort of like personal courses as as kind of like a consulting sort of like professional formation courses and i'm just in the process of actually putting together a website for that so uh, we, we will see later on how, how does that work
0: uh, let me know uh, when it's ready so I can insert the link uh, under the description
1: yeah I would like to so I think I think uh, it is it is very important that you have people like yourselves like yourself who are trying to actually you're not just trying to spread information although that's that's a that's a part of it and i think this is a really good way to to let's say approach the sustainability question and uh, from the top of my mind i can hardly recall i can hardly recall anyone let's say in transylvania who's doing that uh, so that's definitely definitely a big positive but what i really like is that you are despite knowing how extremely difficult it is you're trying to make a business case out of this and then i think i think uh, Perhaps that's the answer. You you asked what can individuals or companies do. Perhaps actually that's the answer. What you're doing is probably the best way uh, to to let's say market sustainability or, or, or something like that. Not just raising awareness, but actually sitting down and trying to make trying to make a bottom line out of it. So yeah, I would really really humbly like to you know congratulate you on that and yeah keep it up. It's a difficult. That's definitely a difficult uh, you know road, but. Uh, just keep going
0: Blue Makers podcast where waste is not wasted anymore